0: If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're in James chapter 4, continuing uh, this journey that we began almost two months ago. We're, we're just working our way uh, through this letter that, that is meant to, it's meant to show us um, what it looks like to walk in the, in the ordinary faith that we're called into. And we need to just, for the sake of time, we need to just jump in here today. So would you stand with me as we look together at the word of the Lord to us this morning? This is James chapter 4. We're starting there in verse verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we I mean, if we hear what you just said to us, we know that we know that this is a that this is a serious word, Lord, to, to be told to be wretched and mourn and weep, to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. Lord, these are hard words, and so I pray that you would give us an ear, not just to hear, but to receive and to understand. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word today, you would shape and form us more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Savior. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, as we've been working through um, this sort of middle section of James, we, we've seen how the Lord is painting a picture for us of what it looks like to walk in a new creation life, this, this, this what we've called a new creation identity uh, that we've been given by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. It's almost like he's it's almost like God's giving us a a blueprint, sort of a sort of a portrait or maybe like a profile of what a disciple of Jesus is meant to is meant to look like. But but more than that, more than and this needs to be this this cannot be overstated. More than telling us what it what we're meant to look like as a disciple, he's telling us what we're meant to be as a disciple of Christ. It's this reality that God himself has a specific idea, that the creator of all things has an idea and a specific purpose in mind for us as his children. One of the things that happens pretty often in our family is that people will tell us, they'll come up to Laurie and I um, from time to time, and it, happens, it happens a lot, and, and they'll tell us they tell us how much our kids look like us. I met someone up at the school a few weeks ago. It, it was one of our, uh, it was one of the trainers um, working with our football team out on the field, and she was helping me. Uh, I had, uh, my finger was bleeding, and so she was helping me to wrap it up, and, and it, was, it was like this whole, it was a whole deal anyway. Um, and, and, <laughs> and her first words to me, out of nowhere, were, you must be Tucker's dad. Which, like, it, 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 I don't know if you can imagine, like, you don't really know how to receive that, right? Like, that's it could be this is a great, and it was, it was a good thing. She's like, oh, I love Tucker, he's great, da da, da. But there's also a little bit of fear that creeps in at first. Like, uh, you must be Tucker's dad, like, what did he do? Like, oh, you're the reason he's like this. Anyway, um, but they were being complimentary, so it was all good. And in fact, after I had written this Little intro into this sermon. This literally happened to me again Friday night before the football game. Somebody goes, "Oh, you must be Tucker's dad. He looks just like you." And I was like, "Thanks, thanks, thanks, thanks." Um, anyway, um, anyway, it's cool. We see it. We're not blind to that reality. I mean, we we have senses and so forth. So it's natural. It's normal. Families look like each other. Like we do. Like we bear the marks of resemblance. It's just how it is. And that's what. And that's that's really what James is getting at here, right? It's it's been this. It's been the whole flow of the letter since back in 224 when he said that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's really getting to the heart of what he's of what he's saying there. And we've said this repeatedly, but we need to reinforce it once more. It's, it's not that we're saved by works. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you are saved, that you don't receive salvation by what you do. It's not that our salvation is dependent on any work that we perform. It's not by what we do. That's not what he's getting at. James agrees with the testimony of Scripture that we are saved, that we are justified in the sense of being made, uh, being counted as righteous, not by our works, right? It's Ephesians 2.8, that, that by grace you have been saved through faith. And he goes on to say, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. I mean, Paul's being very specific. They're not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And what I would tell you is that James is fundamentally on board with that doctrine of salvation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that all of this is to the glory of God alone. He's not wavering on that, like James is not walking that back in any way, but it's, it's, it's that what we do, here's what you get: at, that what we do, all right, how we walk, how we live and move in this world, is the witness to our claim of faith. And even Paul says in Ephesians two ten, like following up on that famous doctrine of, of grace alone by faith alone and Christ alone, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's what James is getting. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the children of God. He's writing to, to them in this letter, at least partly. Okay, at least partly. I'm not saying this is the whole focus. He's, he's writing to us at least partly because our lives aren't in alignment with our claims of faith. Because, because he's, writing to them because, he's writing to them as the children of God because they don't look like the children of God. And we can understand how this happens. Okay, most of us have been around the church long enough, and if you haven't, I want to just go ahead and throw this out there for you that the church is not a group of perfect people, okay? And if you walk into any church that they give you that idea, they're doing it wrong, okay? We're not, and so if you've been in the church, you should have amened that, okay? If we were, this is a Baptist church, y'all would have fired off real quick that we aren't perfect, y'all would like, amen, and then we'd be like, calm down, bro, we're Presbyterians, but whatever. Um, we've seen it. If we've been in the church long enough, we have seen the church take missteps, right? We've seen it lose its bearings a little bit. We've seen it go off the rails from time to time, enough times to realize that this message of James is incredibly relevant. And timely for us today. And so it connects right along with last week. All right, last week in the passage just before this, we saw these, these two portraits of wisdom. There was, a, there was a wisdom of the world that was the, like a wisdom from below that would lead us deeper down the path of division and conflict. Okay, it's rooted in what he calls uh, jealousy and selfish ambition. And there's this, and then and then there's this wisdom from above, right? The wisdom of the Lord, a wisdom that is counter-cultural, and if we're honest, it's a wisdom that's entirely counterintuitive, right? It's what we might call Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount wisdom. It's it's Jesus wisdom, okay? Matthew twenty. Wisdom where Jesus is poised to enter Jerusalem, where the king, right, the one who has spoken everything into being, is set to walk into the holy city, not on a chariot and not on a horse, right, but on the back of a what? You remember this? On the back of a donkey. Like, there's never been a point in human history where that was prestigious. All right, riding a donkey's never been cool. My wife tells a great story about when she took horseback riding lessons when she was a kid, and they had like their competition or whatever, which I have no idea what that looks like. I guess you just ride the horse or whatever. And so they go out. They're like, look at her go! Anyway, and so she's out there, and they ran out of horses on the day of the competition. Mom-in-law's over here like, yep, I remember this. And I'm guessing wasn't super happy about that, because when you go to ride the horse in the horseback riding competition, you expect to ride a horse. But no, 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 no. My wife was given a donkey. And so everybody else is traipsing around doing that. What I have no—I I can only imagine. What, like I, in my mind, they're like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it looks like. I, honestly, I have this video of Snoop Dogg and Kevin Hart talking about horses in the Olympics going in my head right now, and I need it to like—I need it to go away. Because anyway, um, there's nothing. Pre- so this anyway, talk about it an illustration going way off the rails, um. There's nothing prestigious about riding the donkey. And that, yet that's what Jesus chose to cruise into Jerusalem on. It says, he says this with his face toward the cross, demonstrating it by his life, that his words are going to be backed up by what he does. He says the last will be first and the first last. You see, that's the wisdom of the gospel. That's ultimate wisdom. And this week we have two portraits of friendship. And, and like not just friendship in the generic sense, okay? Not just friendship in the way that so many of us have come to understand what friendship is. We, we've sort of allowed the idea of association or maybe even just affiliation um, to become our standard of friendship. We're convinced that, we've convinced ourselves that knowing about someone is the same thing of, as, as knowing someone. And even, and even, listen, and even knowing someone is not true friendship, like you can know people and not like them, right? So just knowing someone isn't friendship. no true friendship, true friendship means trust. That's what true friendship means. True friendship means dependability. True friendship even means like reliance upon. It, it, is, it is saturated with this idea of, of love. And what James is making clear, right is that there are two ultimate types of friendship. There is friendship with the world, and there's friendship with God. It's that one of these is the ultimate friendship in our hearts, and one of these is where we rest our lives. That's what, (laughs) it's not a stretch to say that in this passage, that is what's at stake, our very Lives. And what James is doing in verse 5 is he's really illustrating the type of mess that flows out of the worldly wisdom that we saw in chapter 3. Sinclair Ferguson talks about this section of James being a sort of pathology report. You see, James sees some conflict happening in the church, what he calls quarrels and fights. He's seeing these things happening. Notice, notice that he says that these quarrels and fights are where? Among you. He's not talking about... He's not talking about any he's not talking about world governments. He's not talking about rival football teams. He's not even talking about crazy cousins or aunts and uncles. He's not talking about, he's talking about the church. We have a tendency to focus on those things outside to go, here, here's what's the problem. Like he's not writing this letter to Vladimir Putin going, get out of Ukraine. He's writing to the church going get the sin out of the church. Our tendency is to be, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this, but James isn't doing that. No, he's talking to you and me right now. He's seeing some symptoms, and he's making a diagnosis. So let's look at this. This is the first thing, is friendship with the world. Let's look at it. Look back at verse 1. He asks this rhetorical question there in verse 1, and then he, then he kind of dives in. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That's that's how he starts this section. He's going, I know you see what I am seeing. That's effectively what He's he's begging them to open their eyes. I know you see what's happening, right? I know you feel the tension that I feel. This, This sort of tension that this is not how it's meant to be here. And so we're going we're gonna to play pretend. We, we aren't, we aren't going to just go faking it. Like he's going, look, there's not a Halloween faith, right? You need to take the costume off, quit pretending. This is what's actually happening. And we've got to acknowledge this reality that we've got problems. It's like watching a, a football game. It's one of the things I love about that sport and, and really all, all sports in general. is that they show us they show us what we really are. Like you can talk all you want, and you can, you, can, you can shout at the other bench all you want, but at the end of the day, the film doesn't lie. And so we know exactly who we really are. And what James is saying is, looking at the tape, we've got some problems. He's saying that the source of it all isn't all that complicated. What is our biggest problem? It's us. Nobody creates more mess in my world than me. Nobody. It's our hearts. It's our desires. It's our passions. Look at verse 3, and we're going to come back to those first two verses, but those are really the symptoms of of the infection, okay? And 3 gives us the source. It gives us the diagnosis. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, that's the root of it. That's the root of the problem, and it's always, it's always where the Bible brings us. It's always where God meets us. He's going the, the, the problem is really a problem of the heart. That's what we're meant to see. Listen, I, I want to just say this. He's, he is, he's talking about monetary things here. and I've been around rich people, and I've been around poor people, and I've been around everything in between. I've been around rich people who think they're poor, and I've been around poor people who think they're rich. And the bottom line is, if you is that money just doesn't deliver what it promises. It doesn't. It can't. Uh, we like to think it can. We're, we're thoroughly convinced ourselves as a culture uh, that, that it will satisfy us. We think it will do that, but it just can't do it. Because like sin, here's what it does. It always overpromises and underdelivers. That's just how it is. And so the problem here isn't a quantity issue. It's not worldly provisions. It's worldly passion. And our passions are where we look to for our source of joy. It's where we look for satisfaction. Look at 4. He comes out strong there in verse 4, man. He, verse, verse, four, I, verse 4 was hard to read when we were reading it out. I, if, I can, like, if I can just be honest with like, when I was reading this out loud just a few minutes ago, verse 4, I got to that and was like, yep, this is going to sting if you can hear it. Because what does he say? You adulterous people that's not a compliment that's not like that's ooh, he's not being he's not being soft here he says you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god you see that's strong right there that's an either or type of strong right there. He's coming with some fire because he sees what it does in the church when those in the church have their affections rooted in the world. we need to remember that these people, they're living in a time of real persecution, like real persecution. I mean, you need to think about that for just a second. They're living in a time when believers are being actively tracked down. They're being thrown into coliseums. They're being uh, fed to lions, there's one emperor who is literally going to tie them to post, cover them in pitch, and use them to light his gardens at night like this is real persecution, okay they're being hunted and killed for their profession of faith. Some of us think that well, we understand persecution today, but we don't and I, I, just, I I love you and I want to be honest, with you, we don't understand real persecution. Listen, your friend or your coworker, co-worker pu- <laughs> or your cousin posting antagonistic stuff on Facebook, that's not persecution, okay? It's obnoxious. <laughs> I'll grant you that, but that's, that's not persecution. And our current cultural climate is a hotbed of ridiculous takes that people propagate and perpetuate at will, but that's not persecution. And so it's interesting that in the New Testament, and James specifically, he... he It works on the presupposition. Here's a presupposition of the New Testament that the sin of Christians in the church is a far greater threat to the church than the sin of the world thrown at the church. James is going, he's going, we're the problem. And in our infatuation with the world, he compares us to a cheating spouse. Because listen, that's how God sees us. I don't know if I can drive this point home strong enough. God sees us as his bride. That's the way the Old Testament views us. That's the way the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob views us. It's as his covenantal people, it's as his bride. And listen, we use this language, we still use this language in our weddings today. Right, That we promise and covenant right before God and these witnesses to be our loving and faithful husband or wife. This is the promise we make. We promise and covenant. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, where he says that our marriages, that he literally says that marriage is meant to remind us of the covenant of grace. He says that this mystery, he calls it a mystery, he says the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so verse 5 here in James 4 should make some sense to us when he says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You see, it's in the context of the covenant that God looks at us. It's through that lens that Jesus looks at us with the eyes of a husband for his wife. And so he is jealous for us. He's not jealous of us. Like, let's be real clear. He's not jealous of you. You've got nothing to offer God that he needs. All right? He is full and complete in and of himself. So he's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want a fraction of you, just like no husband would stand in front of a, a bride. No, no groom is going to stand in front of a bride on a wedding. and go, I'll just take the good stuff and one bad thing. Everything else you've got to give somebody else. And we don't do that, right? That's not the promise we make. That's not what Jesus wants. He do not want a fraction because he hasn't given us a fraction. He wants the whole because he has given us all of himself. When I was a kid growing up in the church, there was a song that we would sing. We'd pull out the overhead projector. Anybody? Just dated myself. And we'd pull out the overhead projector. It was super technological at the time, man. We were like, we are, we are awesome. And uh, we put the little transparency on it. And you'd shine it up on the wall. And some guy with a guitar who probably didn't really know how to play, he'd start strumming. Anyway, it was great. And here, here's, those were the best days of youth ministry that ever existed. Because after that, you had to like buy lights and smoke machines. And it was just game over, whatever. Here's what the song said. It said, give me one pure and holy passion, that give me one magnificent obsession, give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. And all the like 40 and above people are like, amen, I remember that. And everybody else is like, never heard that one before. That's what James is getting after, is that Jesus has given us all of himself, not in exchange for a portion of you, not for the Sunday morning part of you, not for the one hour out of 168 in a week part of you. He wants the whole thing, all of you. Think about that. He, like, he knows all your mess. He knows all your secrets. I want you to imagine for just a second that all of your thoughts, from, I'll even let you pick the day from this past week. Whatever your best day was this week when you were like, you know what? I was pretty good this day. You pick that day. And just imagine for a second that every one of your thoughts is plastered up here on this screen, or this one. They show, they show the same thing. Imagine every thought, right? Every angry thought, every lustful thought. All the husbands and wives are like, nope, 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 nope. run out the door, right? Uh, imagine that every one of your bitter thoughts was plastered up here for everyone to see. Like, Jesus already knows all that. And yet, he loves us. Like, he didn't go running out the door. Like we talk about with the kids. He's, he's, he's washing us off, bringing us into the house. He's going, guess what? I paid for all that, too. We've said it before. Sometimes some of us are spending too much of our time carrying sin around that Jesus already paid for. We're grabbing up bags that don't belong to us anymore. And if you do that at the airport, they'll throw you in jail. You try it. No, don't. (laughs) You grab somebody else's luggage and you get in trouble. Listen, that's why we get into a lot of trouble ourselves in our own hearts. We're still trying to grab bags that don't belong to us. We don't understand grace. He loves us. He gave himself for us. Taking all of that, every one of those thoughts, every one of those, all of those inclinations, all of those, all of those, he took all of that on himself. I mean, that's the gospel, That that for our sake, right, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all the kids in River Kids said amen because they've been memorizing that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, put that one in your mind. All right, because he didn't redeem just a part of you. And he isn't settling for a part of you. What our Lord desires for us is a true and dynamic friendship with the Lord. That's the second part here. Look at verse 6. And pay attention there to the imperatives. There's nine of them. So I'm giving you a hint. There's nine of them in there. This is a portrait of a friend of God. Starting in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter Be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You might know the story of Joseph. It's basically the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, and in that scene, he's there's this scene where he's having breakfast with his brothers and he's telling them, you probably remember, he's telling them about this dream that he's had. And listen, he was the favorite, okay? He was, he was, he was, the, he was daddy's favorite for sure, right? Joseph got extra gifts. He got extra patience. He, he received the kindness of his dad in a way that the older brothers didn't. And so he was, I mean, all right, here it is. Joseph was a little spoiled. All right, he was. And the other ones felt that. And then he's there at breakfast, and now you can see this scene kind of playing. He's there at breakfast, he's eating his favorite cereal, probably out of some special bowl that Jacob had for him. And, and he's like, hey guys, last night, listen, last night I had this dream where you guys, check this out, you are my servants. That's young Joseph. He's that kid. Like, you wouldn't have liked him either. Let's just be real clear. Remember that time when I was having a dream and you guys were my servants? You'd you like, please let this kid spill his bowl of cereal. Please, 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 please. They're like awesome, man. Thanks. Um, and and then like and like you just gotta hear them like underneath their bell, like, bro, Joseph's the worst. Um and the way Stephen tells this story, I love the way Stephen tells this story in Acts 7. He says that the patriarchs, that's that's the other, that's the other brothers, by the way. The patriarchs of our faith <laughs> are the ones who sell their brother. So anyway, just Wrap your mind around that one. He says the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Sold him. Sold him. Like, we th- they sold their brother. Like, we've seen funny videos of like the gender reveal party or whatever, and like the little sibling sees the balloon pop and it's pink, and they're like, ah, I want to know. You haven't seen the video, I'm like, uh, what'd you do with your sister? She's gone. <laughs> sold that thing. Um, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The story goes on to say that they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. An unrecognized part of Joseph's story is that we see in there that God humbled proud Joseph. And in the end, the patriarchs were humbled when Joseph was, in fact, lifted up out of the pit and placed as the second in command in Egypt. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's not a pithy, trite little statement. That's a biblical and historical fact. Pride puts a wall between us and God, and God tears down that wall. And the way James says it is that God sees us in our sin, that continuing, pervasive, nagging sin, and all the conflict that spurs uh, in our hearts and in our lives, He sees us in that. And what does it say there at the beginning of verse 6? But He gives more grace. Listen, <laughs> that is good news for us today. He gives more grace. More than what? More than whatever there is. He gives more grace. God gives more grace. God gives good father grace to his sons and daughters. And that grace does something in us. To truly receive that grace is to be transformed by that grace. And what it does, seeing life as a journey uh, to a destination, like seeing us on a pathway to somewhere, seeing and understanding life as a pilgrimage, what grace, what grace does is it recalibrates our it recalibrates the course of our life. I've been driving all over the place in these football games for the past couple of months, and, and listen, I have not been to a lot of these places. Like, some of them are out in the middle of nowhere. And so what, I, before I leave the parking lot, you, what do I do? If I don't know where I'm going, I mean, it's 2022, we all know what you do. You like Siri. And mine's Australian, it's awesome. I don't know if you know that you can program your Siri to speak to you in an accent. So mine's like an Australian person going, take a left. I can't do it, sorry. Um, yeah, I plug it in. I put the address into the phone and I follow the instructions, right? I turn what ter- where it tells me to turn. I take the roads that it tells me to take. And I, I have, up to this point, arrived safely at the destination. James is do- what James is doing here is he's giving us some navigational instructions for our walk with Christ. There are nine imperatives. They're right there in verse, begin right there in verse 7. Knowing our destination, having the course uh, set for us by God, what does it say that we do? Submit to God. That means he's the master of my faith. That means that God is the captain of my soul. He says to resist the devil. Look, there's just no getting around the fact, and and I love you enough to tell you this, that, that because you have trusted in Christ for your eternal life, you have an enemy. You have a spiritual enemy that wants your allegiance. He wants your trust. James tells us to resist the devil. He says to then what? Draw near to God. That's, a, that's the daily pursuit. That's coming to him in real space and time, in his word, meeting him in prayer, being present in worship. He says, draw near to God. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. You know what? That's, that, that, that's repentance. That's what it means. That's repentance. That's turning from our sin and turning back to the Lord. And repentance means more than changing. Repentance means changing course, not just changing our mind. It's not just apologizing, it's it's turning. Look back at verse 9 for a second. Look at verse 9. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Here's what the world would love for you to think the world would love to think that your heart is actually. That your heart is actually leading you in the right direction. That's what you, that's what the world would love for you to. That's what the enemy would love for you to think. The world will tell you to follow your heart. It'll tell you to do what makes you happy. It will tell you that you are the ultimate authority in your life. And and that's where so much of the chaos comes from today. Right? It's everybody. It's everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. By the way, that's not new. I, I've been reading Second Kings uh, for this past week during my morning devotions. That's just where I am. I didn't pick that and. And what you see over and over about these kings is that it says that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is, so this isn't new, right? This is just, they just trusted in the wisdom of the world. And so James, he isn't saying that Christians should be sad all the time. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that when we sin, we, when we fall short, right? when we miss the mark and veer off of that path, he's saying we can confess that. We can admit that. Like Christians, we should be the first to say when we've gotten it wrong. We should be the first to apologize. We should be the first to humbly go, yeah, I don't know everything. I messed it up. We can confess that. And know once more that he gives what? More grace. The proof is there at the cross. That's what we call it. It's the gravity of grace, okay? It's the weight of his love that moves us. Remember, Remember what Romans... Two four says that it's not the anger of God and it's not the wrath of God, but it's the kindness of God that's meant to lead you to repentance. It's the love of God that sent Jesus to the earth. For God so loved the world. Don't forget that. The call here in James 4 is to receive that love. is to embrace that love of God expressed for us in Jesus at the cross. So here it is. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at His Son. Paul reminds us in Colossians 1 that Jesus Jesus doesn't just bear a family resemblance to God. He He doesn't just look like God. He's the image of the invisible God. And he's delivered us. This is what he goes on to say. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's easy to tell who a parent is by what the child looks like. Now I'm coming back to that trainer out in the field telling me that I must be his dad because he looks like me. It's easy to tell what a parent, who the parent is by what the child looks like, and it, but it's more than just physical appearance. What we look like is more than the shape and size and color. It's more than that. Laurie and I were laughing about this the other day. Um, I'm not making this up for purposes of a sermon, I promise. We, we were laughing about this just the other day. Um, about how over the past few months, it's happened to both of us, People have told us both how much our daughter looks like us. Oh, yeah, 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 she looks like you. I mean, it's happened multiple times. Multiple times it's happened. And before that, it never happened to me. Okay, it never happened to me. They kept telling us how much our daughter looks like us, but it hasn't been Caden. You see, that one's a given, I mean, we look, she looked like we cloned her, okay? I mean, that's just bizarre how much she looks like Mama. No, it's been clear. You see, the more she walks with us, this is the truth, the more she walks with us, the more she looks like us. It's like an observable reality that you can see. It's the way she dresses. It's, it's guy, y'all, it's the sense of the candle she picks out. Um, <laughs> it's the food that she eats. It's the way she... It's the way she drives, drives like mama, all right? It's the way she talks, like it's all those like sort of things that you can see and observe and witness, but it's deeper than that too. It's the way she thinks. It's the rhythms and the patterns of life. It's the priorities. It's the way she, it's the way she loves and the way she leads. It's as comprehensive and honestly and I think parents can understand that it's also this very intimidating thing to think about, just how much your kids receive from you. But the truth is that the people we're closest to, they impact us. Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God, not as welcome guests, but as new creations, sons and daughters of the king. He has chosen you. He has liberated you. And he will bring you all the way home. That's why James says, draw near to God. Be with him. Be shaped by him. Be made to think and act and love more like him. Be his child both in faith and in practice. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. May we all be made more like Jesus today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. We thank You that You... God, I thank You that I can stand here today and and say both in humility and in joy that You are not finished with us. That you are still at work in us. That you are still at work in me. That I, that, the, that, the, that the man I am today is not the man I will ultimately be. Because you're still sanctifying. You're still working in us. Still shaping and fashioning in us more and more into the likeness of your Son. Jesus, please be near to us. Give us the conviction and the heart to draw near to you. If, they, if the world says anything about the people who meet in this little warehouse, let it be that they look like Jesus. And we pray that in your name.